Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern-day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, greetings, everyone. It's Don Johnson here again with the Proclaim and Defend podcast. I'm just uh, bringing to you today the last of our preaching sessions from our annual meeting in Ankeny, Iowa this last uh, summer. We have uh, a few more podcasts to uh, bring out over the next few weeks. We also have some very interesting interviews coming up, and I really encourage you, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe to the audio podcast free. Uh, if you join our Substack and as a paying subscriber, uh, you will be able to read articles from interviews uh, that uh, that we publish with them. And you also, if you subscribe for the year, you'll be able to get the print magazine delivered to your home. So we really encourage your subscription. The message, uh, this last one, comes from uh, Pastor Josh Crockett. He gave us a great uh, stirring wind-up message for our meeting, and I hope that you enjoy uh, the message and uh, the Lord uses it in your life. And so without any further ado, here's Pastor Crockett. Thank you, Dr. Tillotson. If you have a Bible, let's turn to Mark 5. I so appreciate what God is doing here at Faith. And this conference uh, has been a blessing and a challenge to me. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be here. My wife and I love to go on walks in our neighborhood. Um, It's good exercise, we get some fellowship, and it's a good way to connect with our neighbors and meet new neighbors who move into the area. And uh, sometimes it it is getting a little bit dark. By the time I come home from work or she comes home from work uh, and we eat dinner and we put the dishes away and start on our walk, it's more of a sunset walk. And so last August, it was one of those nights that was a little bit late. And uh, we we got to the bottom of our driveway and we heard screaming back at the house. So we ran back up to the house and realized that our youngest son had dumped almost a gallon of milk all over the kitchen. We didn't cry over it. Uh, we just we cleaned it up and finally got started on our walk. And by now it was really beginning to get dark. And so we said, well, we're, we're just going to have to walk fast and talk fast. And we're surrounded by Paris Mountain State Park, so kind of on the side of a mountain. So we go down this very steep hill and up another steep hill to the front of our subdivision, go around. And then we go down this cul-de-sac where there's just one house. And whereas all of us are supposed to bring our trash cans back up to the garage after Thursday trash day, they always just leave theirs out there because they're the only ones on the cul-de-sac. And so we're, we're walking kind of straining our eyes, walking fast, and I freeze. And and 15 feet ahead of me, next to the trash cans, is this huge head of a bear. And as soon as I freeze, it lets out this expulsive, almost roaring growl and lunges back into the woods, thankfully. I, I don't know if he saw my Crockett name tag or for whatever reason he got, got nervous and went back in the woods. So we simultaneously lunge back the other direction 
and start running as fast as our middle-aged bodies would go down the big hill, up the big hill, wee, 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 all the way home. And some men in my church asked me, they said, were you in front of your wife or behind your wife? And I assured them I was behind her. I said, not because I'm chivalrous, just because she's faster than I am. And, and she realized she didn't have to outrun the bear, she just had to outrun me. And so she, she got home first. But when we think about our backyard, our neighborhood, our home, for most of us, that's hopefully not a place of danger. We have had some more bear sightings in our neighborhood uh, the, the last few weeks. But hopefully it's a place where we relax, we feel comfortable. For many people, it's kind of their ultimate comfort zone, their backyard. And yet tonight I want us to see that it can also be a place for great, great opportunities for evangelism right in our backyard. And again, this conference has ministered to my heart, has been so convicting, sermon after sermon, hearing about the way God has blessed in different men's ministries, their, their heart for evangelism, convicted me of doing the work of an evangelist and reclaiming the Great Commission in my own life, but then especially for my church family, to, to see that DNA, that culture of evangelism that, that each of us, I believe, prays for as a pastor, and, and we really want to see the Holy Spirit create. And, and yet, as wonderful as a conference like this is, the fellowship, seeing old friends, hearing these messages, tomorrow morning when we get back into our cars, we're on our flights to go home. We're going to start thinking about the dozens or hundreds of people God has entrusted to us to shepherd and, and, and start thinking, are we really going to be able to make this happen? Is the, is the Holy Spirit really going to work the way that we see in the New Testament, the way that we've heard, the way that we pray for? And it can be daunting. We look at what's happening in our nation the massive cultural shifts that have happened, not just in my lifetime, but in the last few years. And, and sometimes it, it does seem like, can, can we really do this? I'm part of a Facebook group that some of you may be in called the Pastors Fellowship. A lot of pastors contribute to that. And last fall, someone wrote Missions Wake Up Call. He, this guy had been talking to a 60-year veteran missionary who said he recalled when his missions agency, one that we would all know, had 50 candidates a year. In 2021, they had six. Someone replied on the thread, I'm serving with the same mission. I've served there for 20 years. Here are my observations. Number one, our field used to be the largest, yet since our arrival in 2005, we've had exactly one other family join us in our region while losing countless veteran missionaries to retirement. Number two, in each of our three furloughs, we've noticed a steady overall decline in our supporting churches. He said most of them. He's like, some of you guys might be on this uh, thread. So not all of them, but most of our, our supporting churches are declining. Number three, the age demographic of many of our supporting churches is noticeably older. Number four, there seems to be an increasing scarcity of pastors, not just missionaries. And then he concludes, we're in serious trouble in about 10 years, I'm talking United Methodist level extinction. Now, again, this is a guy probably middle-aged like me, 
Maybe that's alarmist. But again, as, as someone who's been pastoring now for almost 20 years, been the chairman of a small mission board with our church for almost nine years now, it, it is sometimes concerning. We, we see these surveys every single year about how more and more Americans are identifying as nuns and not female Catholic clergy with a white napkin on their head, but N-O-N-E-S, that they have no use for religion. They're affiliated with no denomination, no religion of any kind. Atheism is skyrocketing in America. I saw a recent Pew Research study that said Christianity is projected to be a minority religion in America by as early as 2045. They say 65 to 80 percent of our churches are declining or dying. And and those statistics seem frightening, seem overwhelming, until we remember that Jesus told his disciples that he would build the church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He says, with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are what? All things are possible. He's the God of the impossible. And that's what we see in this section of Mark's gospel, that Jesus rules over everything. So the end of chapter four, Jesus's disciples are out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee and Jesus shows that he rules. He has power over nature when he looks at these hurricane force winds and waves and he says, be muzzled. And it's a reminder that whatever storms we're facing in our lives, that Jesus is greater than those storms. That he rules over those storms. In the middle of chapter 5, there's this woman who's been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. Jesus shows his power over the human body by healing her with the hem of his robe. And it's a reminder as we pray for Zach's surgery tomorrow. That whatever diagnosis, no matter how dire it sounds, that diagnosis is not greater than the great physician. That he has power over our human bodies. And then at the end of Mark 5, Jesus raises Jairus' 12-year-old daughter from the dead, showing us that he has power even over death itself. So we don't have to be afraid of a woke government when our Father has resurrection power, when, when he has power over our soul. And so here at the beginning of Mark 5, Jesus shows his power over supernatural forces. Look with me at verse 2. And when Jesus was come out of the ship, immediately there met him, Jesus, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. So as men, sometimes we think that would be great to have supernatural strength like that, but it's satanic. And at what price does it come? Verse 5, and always, night and day, this wild man was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Now, I don't know, I haven't talked to Dr. Stedman or Patrick Odell or John Crocker how you all have mission candidates presented to your, your boards, but at Open Door Baptist Missions, we'll have our, our board, we'll go into a conference room, we'll sit around a conference room table, we'll look at the candidate's resume, their application, we'll discuss it for a little bit, and then we'll send a staff member to bring in the mission candidate. Now imagine if as that mission candidate is coming down the hallway, you hear chains clanking and unhuman howling. And all of a sudden, this wild man bursts into the conference room. His, his clothes are ripped off. 
his skin is shredded and he starts clawing or biting your board members. How many of you think that that guy's going to get a majority vote to say that looks like a future missionary? Let's let's have him with our mission board, maybe to Tasmania, but probably not to most fields. You're, you're going to say no. But Jesus sees this man and says, yes, this is going to be a future missionary. In verse eight, he says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Verse 13, and the unclean spirits came out and entered into the swine. This is the first recorded case of deviled ham. He, he sends these demons into the pigs and then the pigs go off the cliff. And, and as that man, former wild man, looks at this bay of pigs floating, he, he realizes this is the power of God. This is, I've not only been released from these demons, they're dead now. They're gone. Jesus is showing his mercy even in the end of these pigs to this wild man. So how do the people of Gerasa react to this? Verse 15, and they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had a legion of demons sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And the townspeople were what? Relieved, grateful. No, they're afraid. So he was wild and now he's tame. Naked and now he's clothed. Crazy. Now he's in his right mind. And now they're afraid. You say, why are they afraid? They're afraid of the power of God. They realize this is the power of God in the life of a man. No self-help could do this. No religious rituals could do this. No external constraints could do this. They had tried all those things. This is God taking a man and making him a new creature. Old things are passing away. All things are becoming new. And, and yet you say, well, why are they afraid of Jesus for that? Verse 17, and they began to pray Jesus to depart out of their coast. Luke, in his parallel account, says they were gripped with a great mega fear they begged Jesus to go away. I remember when my oldest daughter was a little baby. One night we put her in her crib at 8 o'clock. My wife and I went to bed at 11 o'clock. Five minutes after midnight, we hear this blood-curdling pterodactyl scream coming from her room. So we go into her room and she, her body, she's convulsing. She's ripped off her blankie. Her face is beat red. She's screaming at the top of her lungs. She's the wild baby of Gadara. And, and there was nothing we could do to calm her down. And so finally, I looked at my wife and said, well, there's no use both of us losing sleep. Why don't you go to bed? She goes to bed and I pick up this little nuclear baby and I start walking her, talking to her, rocking her, walking, talking, rocking to no avail. So then I think, well, maybe if I sing to her. So I sing every song I can think of. And then I repeat all of those songs. And then I start making up songs as I'm trying to calm this little baby. After an hour and 45 minutes, she finally, her body relaxes. She almost goes limp from exhaustion. I put her back in her crib, tiptoe out of her room, go across the loft, into our bedroom. What if as I opened the bedroom door, my wife had sat up with eyes as big as saucers and said, get out of here. Stay away from me. Depart. I would think she's having a crazy nightmare induced by this wild baby. 
she's she's literally lost so much sleep, she's going crazy, she's going off the deep end. I mean, here Jesus has just healed the number one public menace, and now they're scared of him. You say, why would they react like this? Some scholars think, well, maybe it's simple economics. I mean, if you lost 2,000 of anything, especially livestock, in an agrarian culture, you'd probably be upset. I, I don't know if there are any Iowa farmers who can come up afterwards and tell me the price of a hog. But let's say a, ho- a head of hog goes for $500. This is a million-dollar loss. You say, but yeah, Jesus wasn't exactly the one that killed the pig, them, them though. The, it was the demons who killed the pigs, who drowned the pigs. And it doesn't say that they're angry at Jesus. It simply says they were afraid of Jesus. See, I think this has more to do with power than with profit. It's interesting, the last miracle, Jesus' disciples are in the boat, they see the storm, and they are deathly afraid of the storm. They say, Master, we're going to perish. These are seasoned sailors. They're looking at the storm saying, we're going to perish. Jesus calms the storm. And it says, then they were even more afraid of verse 41. Again, megaphobia. Now they're greatly afraid when they see the calm sea. When they see Jesus' power. Have you ever thought, maybe what you fear most about sharing the gospel is not rejection It's not persecution. It's not physical threat in America. Maybe you're afraid to submit to Christ's rule. Maybe you're you're asking yourself, well, what if he leads me to take the gospel to those people? Remember Jonah and the Ninevites. Are, Are there people in your community that you would rather leave alone by themselves outside the city gates of Gerasa like these people did? And you would say, I would actually prefer that our lives not intersect. I don't want to have to deal with their messy lives. I don't want their mess interfering with my life. It's easy to write off people with addictions. Well, they just made all those bad choices in life. Or people on welfare. Well, they just had a good work ethic. Or immigrants. Why did they have to invade our country? Do do we fear where the Spirit might lead us if we submit to Christ's rule. Well, thankfully, this wild man doesn't reject Christ's rule. He receives Christ's rule. Verse 18. And when Jesus was coming to the ship, he that had been been possessed with the devil prayed Jesus that he might be with Jesus. So it's really interesting. There are three characters in this narrative, and they all beg Jesus for something. So the, the first is the chief demon begs Jesus to send them into the swine And Jesus gives them what they want and they perish. The second are the townspeople. They beg Jesus to leave their region and he gives them what they want and they lose their savior. The third is this man. He begs to be with Jesus and Jesus doesn't give him what he wants. Jesus says no. Why? Because he has something better for him. Verse 19. Howbeit Jesus suffered or permitted him not, but said unto him, go home. Don't come with me. Don't go with me. Go home. Why? He says, go home to your friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for you and has had compassion on you. Sometimes God calls us to leave our father and mother and go with them across the globe. 
Go to the uttermost parts of the earth. In February, Patrick Odell preached an excellent sermon at our missions conference on that statement that Christ makes. The fields are white unto harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. And, and God does that. God called my grandparents. And, and they went to the mission field with Baptist Missions almost eight decades ago. God called my youngest brother about a decade ago. He's actually the, the poster missionary for Baptist Missions. I sent this to him on WhatsApp yesterday um, to, to go to Africa. It was interesting. I think it was two weeks ago in our new membership class. Uh, this young couple came in and they said, we were students at Bob Jones. We had your brother Nathan uh, as one of our teachers, one of our Bible teachers. And he would talk about his better looking brother. They said, it's so good to meet you. I said, no, that's that's Luke. That's not me. This is the only guy you'd want to put on a poster. This is something that God does and that we are praying for more laborers, for more missionaries to go to the ends of the earth. But sometimes God calls us to make disciples at home. Sometimes Christ calls you to go home. At our missions conference in 2020, Dr. Tillotson challenged our church family very similarly to the way he challenged us today. Is very convicting. To use your home, to use hospitality, to build redemptive relationships with your neighbors, to point them to Christ. And, and that's something that since COVID, my wife and I have been trying to do with not only our walks, but inviting our neighbors into our home, having meals with them. And it's been tremendous seeing those relationships develop, getting to share the gospel with our neighbors, praying with our kids for our neighbor kids and their parents and our other neighbors in that that seven house quadrant like he described this morning. This is something that God calls all of us to make disciples, whether we go to the ends of the earth or we go back to Jerusalem or to Judea or Samaria. All of us are called to make disciples. And what amazes me is that in our country, God's bringing the mission field to our backyard. I, I was judging a speech tournament. There's a young man in our church who's a speech teacher at Riverside High School in Greer, this huge public school, and asked me to come judge this speech tournament. And I've judged countless AACS tournaments in Indiana, South Carolina. I looked down at the judges sheet. This is the first time I couldn't pronounce any of the students' names. They were Arabic, Indian, Chinese, Korean, and it struck me, here I am in a red state, Bible belt, mid-sized city, God has brought the nations, the mission field, to our backyard. The U.S. has more immigrants than any nation on earth, 45 million immigrants. Of the 313 million people in America today, 62 million are Hispanic, and that number is growing rapidly. They say that already whites under the age of 18 are a minority. They're no longer the majority. And my wife saw this in her Awana Cubbies class last year that if you looked at the white three to five year olds, they were less than half of the class. They say by 2045, that's going to be true of our whole nation. When Jesus says the fields are white, I don't think he meant Caucasian. He, he is sending us to everyone. And so... What are we doing to reach the mission field in our backyard? There's a missiologist who says something is missionally malignant whenever we're willing to make great sacrifices to travel the world to reach a people group, but are not willing to walk across the street. 
I'm thankful for our pastor emeritus, Tony Miller, had a vision not only to grow our Spanish ministry, but then he started a Chinese ministry and an Arabic ministry. And so I love to show this infographic uh, that shows the 12 most spoken languages in the world and, and recognize that we could literally have billions of people come into our assembly on the Lord's Day, not all at the same time, but and hear the Word of God taught in their native language, in their heart language. You say, well, are there challenges to having four different language groups in the same congregation? The answer, of course, is yes. There are space constraints, there are cultural barriers, there are language barriers. About a year ago, I was supposed to do the scripture reading in our Spanish service, and so I tried to summon my two years of high school Spanish from quarter century ago, and I got on Google, and I did Google pronunciation for all the words, printed it out, wrote all the little diacritical marks, and practiced that thing. And I got up the next day, and I tried to muster my best Spanish accent, and and read that passage. And afterwards, I asked our Spanish pastor, I said, hey, Pastor Mendoza, how do you think it went? It seemed like everybody was smiling. He kind of, <laughs> he kind of dropped his head and um, he said, well, they told me at least Pastor tried. And I think that's Latino for, well, bless his heart. He, he, he tried. <laughs> but here's the beautiful thing. Those barriers evaporate in the second and third generation. Their kids don't want to go to a Spanish-only church any more than our kids want to go to a white-only church. It's exciting to see as our church is integrating in that second and third generation. Another missiologist says 86% of the immigrant population in North America are likely to either be Christians or become Christians. That is far above the national average. The immigrant population actually presents the greatest hope for Christian renewal in North America. By the way, this missiologist, Timothy Tennant, is the president of Asbury College. We shouldn't see this as something that threatens us. We should see this as a wonderful opportunity. Remember that missionary's four observations about the decline of missions and supporting churches. This was his fifth observation that I left off. He says, number five, one demographic that is growing among our churches is work among immigrant groups. His solution, he says, we need to invest in our immigrant brothers and sisters. Now, I realize that this is a political hot potato. Immigration in the U.S. right now, and actually for the last couple decades, has been something that everyone agrees is broken. But neither political party seems interested in actually fixing it. And so my question is, as a pastor Will, will I, like the Garrison villagers, care more about political power and economic profit than a person's soul? What about millions of people's souls? Will I be more like Jonah viewing these, these groups, people groups, as the problem when God views them with eyes of compassion as, as souls made in His image? That he wants to see glorify him. That he wants to redeem. That he wants to show mercy to. Last year we had over a hundred people come through ESL classes in our church. It was exciting. On Sunday, uh, I was talking to Dr. McAllister who was visiting our church. And one of the ESL teachers came up and he was excited. He said, let me introduce you to Jen. Jen is a political refugee from Burma. And Jen was thrilled to be in our service so he can learn English. 
but he's hearing the gospel. Many of these ESL students have attended our church or are now members of our church. Our Spanish pastor, Manny Mendoza, was saved from a very rough life as a teenager, discipled by Dick Mercado, came to Bob Jones. We both finished our MDiv the same day. He, ha- he was actually voted the upstate Hispanic man of the year last year. He's on CNN. He's going to be interviewed by this guy who's supposed to be the Walter Cronkite of Latin America next year. Pastor Manny has used his influence as an executive with UPS as well as a faithful Bible expositor in our ministry to reach out into the community. He's on the board of the Taylor's Free Medical Clinic where Christian doctors and lawyers say we want to give our services to needy families in the community who are uninsured or underinsured, and and many of our Hispanic brothers and sisters go there. We're now partnering with a Christian food bank, Loaves and Fishes. They go pick up all this food from Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, bring it to our campus on Sunday morning, and the Barahona family put that into boxes valued, they say, at about $150 each, probably more now with inflation, that we then give out to needy minority families in our church every single Sunday. We've become a go-to site for immigration services in the upstate. So we started with the Honduran consulate, then the Guatemalan consulate. Last year, the Mexican consulate came down from Raleigh multiple times and gave life-changing services to 5,500 people, Mexican immigrants, who came to our campus, received a bridge tract in Spanish, a warm invitation from our members, English-speaking and Spanish-speaking, to come to our church. And what's awesome is that God is using that word and deed ministry. We saw nine adults come to Christ, make professions of faith, and start discipleship last year. In October, we had a beautiful bilingual baptism service. This is just a few of the adults who were baptized, communion service, And then the next weekend, we rented out the Wilds camp. We had 350 people sign up, Chinese-speaking, Spanish-speaking, English, Arabic, to come together. John Crocker, the new director of GFA, preached bilingually, and we packed out the uh, fireside room with the big moose. And so even our kids were all squeezed up in the balcony with their legs dangling. And John's a great preacher, but he was more animated than usual. And so afterwards, I said, John, what... Why were you so animated? He was coming around the pulpit almost like he was going to crowd surf over the front row. And uh, and I said, did you want to prevent a Eutychus moment, like one of those scenes from falling asleep and falling out of the balcony? Or is that just how you preach to Hispanics? And he said, no, that scenic fireplace behind me felt like the fiery furnace. I was just trying to stay alive and not get roasted. We had this marvelous time as a church family with all these brothers and sisters from different tribes, tongues, people groups, nations, all worshiping the Lamb who is worthy together as one body. It, it was thrilling. The, the story in Mark has a marvelous ending. Look at verse 20. It says, And he, the exercised evangelist, departed and began to publish or proclaim in Decapolis. Now, this is not just a city. Deca, ten Polish cities. This is a, a region of ten Hellenized cities that he goes to. And so imagine that here, not only is God using this man who was crazy, who was wild, to share the good news. And I can only imagine what that was like as he comes back into Gerasa. 
I kind of picture a Western where everybody's, you know, closing their shutters and locking their doors and looking out in the street. And and here he walks in. And maybe his daughter is, is down the street. She looks up, rubs her eyes. Daddy, is that you? He nods and she comes running and he scoops her up in his scarred arms. His wife comes out of the house. Honey, what happened to you? And he tells her what great things Jesus had done for him. How he'd had compassion on him. He says, he's made me new. I'm a new man. And the news of this new man isn't limited to his home or his hometown. It starts spreading like wildfire. It's contagious. And, And so pretty soon he's being asked to go through the whole region and tell people, what happened to you? What great things did God do for you? What did Jesus do for you? How did he have compassion on you? Evangelism should be contagious for Christians. As we've heard this week, it starts by going home to Jerusalem, but then it should spread to Judea and to people who don't look like you in Samaria. And ultimately, you're you're saying we need to send this to the uttermost part of the world. We need to send this message around the globe. Dr. Shaw was telling me last night that he translates his sermon notes on Saturday. He uses Word to do it and then some uh, leaders to, into six different languages of people in his congregation who are, are hearing the message. Some of them have headphones translating, but at least they have his outline in their native language to hear the word preached. I remember when I was in Indiana, Pastor Phelps had started already in Indianapolis what he calls the next door nations. And he has several retired missionaries, ESL classes, a Bible institute, a community garden that he uses to reach international families and bring them into their congregation. Maybe you say, well, I, I live in a little podunk rural area. There are no international families. Every area has people with addictions. Talk to Dr. Berg and start a Freedom That Lasts chapter. What members of your community have great needs? All we have to do is find them and tell them what great things Jesus has done, how he's had compassion on them. And the wonderful thing is that the evangelistic fruit of our church hasn't been limited to just the Spanish ministry. We started last year doing what Tim Potter had challenged several of our pastors to do, and that is begin our prayer meetings with the good news about the good news. And so we will start from the front and share some. And the first time, it was crickets for a little while. People were kind of shocked to be put on the spot. And and yet now, I often have to cut it off so that we can have our devotional, and have our prayer meeting. Because people are popping up. They're excited to share with others. I had the opportunity to start this redemptive relationship. I had the opportunity to, to keep cultivating this redemptive relationship with a neighbor or a co-worker. It's, it's contagious. And again, we're nowhere near where our Spanish ministry is, where Dennis's or Tim's or Dr. Tillotson's ministries are, but we are starting to see a little bit of that evangelistic culture, and it's thrilling to our people. It, it's thrilling to believers to see that kind of evangelism. Our Chinese ministry, again, has been putting us to shame. For years, they've used badminton, basketball outreach, uh, community outreaches, so that on a, a Lord's Day morning, typically in our Chinese congregation, there are at least 20 non-Christian Chinese people who are seeking who are getting closer and closer. The Holy Spirit is is bringing them closer to salvation. And I've had the privilege now in 
a little over eight years of actually having over a dozen formerly atheist, many of them communist, Chinese, now brothers and sisters that I'm baptizing. And, and we're rejoicing with them. Uh, there was a, a woman named Jai Fen who right at the beginning of COVID, she got kind of trapped in the U.S. because of the travel ban that Trump put. And so she gets trapped, has to stay in place with a Chinese deacon from our church. And so he's sharing the gospel with her. By the end of two months, she's not only professed faith in Christ, we at, at that point hadn't opened up our baptistry, so our Chinese pastor was able to baptize her in a kiddie pool in their backyard, literally. Jai went back to China and now has returned to the U.S., is faithfully walking with the Lord in church every Sunday. And we're saying, wow, the Lord, literally, the Great Commission is happening in our backyards. There was a 33-year-old man a year ago, his name was Ambrosio, came to the Mexican consulate that we were hosting at our church, received a bridge tract, an invitation to our church. He got his passport renewed. And and he pretty much forgot about everything that we'd given him. Two months later, he was diagnosed with stage four gastric cancer and metastasized through his whole body. And even though Ambrosio was raised nominally Catholic in Mexico, he didn't Google the nearest Catholic church. He didn't try to find a priest to come do last rites or give him spiritual guidance. He immediately thought of that friendly, loving Baptist church that had welcomed immigrants. Something, by the way, the Old Testament often tells God's people to do, along with orphans and widows. And so he and his wife Esther, eight months ago, walked through the doors of our church. This sister Laura, who had somehow remembered him, of all these thousands of people who had come through, remembered inviting him and giving him the tract. She, she grabbed them, brought them up to our Spanish pastors. They, they prayed over them, prayed for his cancer. And Esther and Ambrosio were just so moved by the love that they saw in the body of Christ. Within two weeks, they both made professions of faith and started discipleship. Last month, Ambrosio was on his deathbed. And he asked the brothers who were standing around the deathbed if they would sing some of his favorite hymns that he had learned over these past several months. And they said that as, as weak as he was, his lips were moving as he was singing these songs, and they said there was, there was a joy and a peace on his face. Because no longer was he trusting in his works, or religion, or the church, or a priest. He was trusting in the great things that Jesus had done for him, and had compassion on him. We're praying for his wife Esther's in her eighth month of pregnancy. She has no family in the States, but again, our church family is coming around her with love and benevolence gifts and care. We're praying for Ambrosio's brother, Isidro, is not yet a believer, but is getting very close. As again, he sees the body of Christ coming around, showing him the great things that Christ has done for him and has had compassion on him. Let's pray. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast.